Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... The path that we started walking down post-Civil War, where millions of the enslaved obtained freedom, but no material compensation, nothing, that's the reckless experiment. We're still living that today. Economist Alora Durenincourt on the last 160 years of the racial wealth gap. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a special Between the Seasons bonus episode of The New Bazaar. Right now, the white-to-black wealth ratio in the United States is 6 to 1. What does that mean? Well, it means that when you add up all the wealth that people in the U.S. can own, their cash, the value of their house, what they have in the stock market, and so on, the average white American has six times the wealth of the average black American. Or to put that another way, for every dollar of wealth that a white American owns, a black American owns just 17 cents. Now, that figure alone should be disturbing enough. But what makes it even worse is that this wealth ratio of 6 to 1 is about the same as it was back in the 1950s, seven decades ago, seven decades in which there's been no convergence between white wealth and black wealth. What is going on? Well, some of the reasons for the long-term persistence in the racial wealth gap are probably going to be familiar to people who just know a little bit about American history. And I don't just mean the history of slavery, but also what came next. Jim Crow, segregation, the many racist laws and policies, and the history of racial violence, all of which combined to make it impossible for black Americans to accumulate as much wealth and to get the same return on their wealth as white Americans. But maybe less understood is another cause, which is that if you go all the way back to the immediate aftermath of emancipation and the Civil War, black Americans were just starting with a lot less wealth from which to build more wealth than white Americans. And that initial difference, that difference in the initial endowment, has continued to have a big lingering effect a century and a half later. These are just some of the conclusions in a new working paper from today's guest, Alora Derenincourt, and from her co-authors Chi Hyun Kim, Moritz Kuhn, and Moritz Shalarik. And I do apologize, by the way, if I mispronounced any of those names. Alora is an economist at Princeton University, where she's also the founder of the Program for Research on Inequality. And on today's chat, I speak with Alora about this fascinating paper and about some of her other related work, which is also fascinating. Here it is. Laura Durenincourt, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thanks for having me. The paper that we're primarily going to be discussing today is called Wealth of Two Nations. So why don't we just introduce the paper itself, what you mean by two nations, and what you set out to study? Sure. So probably the starting fact that we all should know and what motivated us to work on this project is that the racial wealth gap in the United States, the gap in wealth between white and black Americans, is the largest form of economic inequality between the two groups. So if you were to consider things like income, wages versus wealth, the wealth gap is many times larger. So a key statistic is that today, black Americans on average hold about 17 cents for every white dollar of wealth. Yeah. When you consider the income gap, by contrast, that's more like 67 cents on the dollar. Okay. 
That's still really big. Yeah. We shouldn't be happy with that. But the wealth gap is just enormous. And also, it just hasn't really changed in the past few decades. It's been pretty stable. So we launched this project to understand, and, and this is something that I like to do, you know, no matter what kind of form of inequality I'm interested in is say, well, let's turn back the clock. Because if something hasn't changed in a while, how are we going to get ideas to reduce that disparity? So in this case, we said, well, it's kind of surprising that there's no information on the racial wealth gap going further back in time. There's a reason for this. A lot of wealth surveys were added to existing surveys starting in the 1980s. One example is the panel survey of income dynamics. That's been used a lot to study racial wealth gaps. But That's they, pretty recent. That's just yeah, a few decades ago. 1984, right? 1984, exactly. Data just didn't exist before then until you came along and tried to sort of piece together what we did have uh, into something coherent so you could track this over time. Is that right? The key issue is knowing both someone's wealth or the household's wealth and their racial identification. So we might have overall statistics on wealth that we can get from different sources, um, but we don't have the information on racial identity. The census in recent years has home values, but that's not all wealth, we know. Uh, And then, of course, they have income and wages. But uh, to really get a holistic picture of wealth by racial group, uh, we needed to work a lot harder. And to go back before the 1980s, well, that was a significant amount of work that is forms the main contribution of the paper, actually, is that we were able to go back all the way to 1860. Yeah. And I want to actually highlight a couple of the statistics that you just brought up. So when you talk about how the average black American has 17 cents on the dollar that the average white American has, another way of looking at that is that the average white American has six times as much wealth. And that's everything, right? That's the value of your home. That's the value of your cash. That's the value of, I don't know, if you exactly. have stocks in the stock market, it's everything that you own, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then when you compared it to income, where I think you said it was 67 cents mm-hmm. on the dollar, the average white American makes 1.5 times exactly. as much as the average black American. So still inequality, like mm-hmm. still considerable inequality. Yes. Um, but the gap's not as large as for wealth inequality, where it is enormous. Exactly. I have a question about the focus on wealth itself, because- Something that's always been really interesting to me is that economists and I think also other social scientists don't just look at wealth in the context of like, how much does that allow you to enjoy your life? Because if you have a lot of money, then you can buy nice things and you can consume a lot. And that's great. That's easy to understand. But also there's this idea that how much wealth you have can also be a marker of how much you're actually able to participate in society. And because wealth can beget more wealth, like the value of your home goes up, the value of the stock market goes up, and you can transmit it to future generations. You can leave something to your kids as well. And so when we think about wealth, we're not just talking about the ability to buy stuff right now and to enjoy life. It's deeper than that. And I'd just love to hear your your thoughts on it. Yeah. So why does wealth matter? Well, if I were to give you my honest, controversial opinion, please, I wish it didn't matter. Okay. Um, in an ideal, or at least my ideal society, when you run up on hard times, uh, if your someone in your household faces a sudden illness, uh, if you lose your job, any kind of you know major negative shock, I would hope that society could provide for you, mm-hmm. right? So we do have some forms of social insurance in the United States. We have unemployment insurance. We have medical leave. But all of these are very, very thin programs. You know, And by and large, if you fall on hard times in the United States, 
you're kind of on your own. And so wealth is your cushion, private wealth. And that's your stability, in that's other words. It provides your, your freedom in some sense. Yeah. It's insurance against negative shocks, mm-hmm. uh, fundamentally, because you, you, know, you have your flow of income from your job. But when you need to put up a lot of cash, where is that going to come from? So that's one major reason wealth is important. The other reason is that we've had rising wealth inequality in the U.S. over the past several decades, and we've had a campaign finance structure that allows wealthy people to influence our political system. And when you take that into account, then wealth, once again, especially rising wealth at the top, is something that we all need to care about. Uh, Mm -hmm. Increasingly, it starts to not look so much like a democracy if you can essentially buy your preferred policies if you have enough wealth. Let's now turn to the findings in the paper itself. So like you said, you measure this white wealth to black wealth gap going all the way back to 1860. Why don't you just give us kind of the broad sweeping overview of how that gap has evolved since 1860, and then afterwards we'll sort of drill down into the details of different time periods. All right. So I'll probably tell you the story a little bit interwoven with the data because that was uh, the key challenge was how do we actually measure this? Sure. So we go back to 1860. We're able to do that because historically the U.S. Census actually did record wealth. In fact, it used to be a lot easier to measure wealth than income. There were no income questions in 1860. On the census. On the census. There were wealth questions. There was a question about real estate wealth. So whatever property you own, that went beyond the home that you live in. So it was a comprehensive question on land and and property. Back then, that was a very big component of wealth, too. Yes, and an important component of the economy in general. It was a much more agricultural economy at that time. There was also a question on personal property. And in 1860, that included actually a question on uh, property in the enslaved, so slave wealth. In 1870, the census once again asks about both forms of property. The detailed instructions for personal property had changed by that point, and there's no longer this category of slave wealth. Well, of course, there was a civil war in between, and and slavery was abolished. Uh, So we can use those two waves of the census to get a starting point for the wealth ratio. But in 1860, 90% of Black Americans were enslaved. Right. It was something like four out of 4.4 million Black Americans were enslaved at the time, which meant legally they could not own wealth. They could not have property of their own. Exactly. And on top of that, in terms of the measurement, the enslaved were not enumerated in the the census of the population. They were enumerated in separate schedules known as slave schedules. So the funny thing is if you were to naively go to the 1860 census and download the data, which anyone you know with a research affiliation can do, and you just naively calculate the per capita wealth gap between black and white Americans who are enumerated, you'd get a wealth gap similar to the one today. It's very important to take into account those millions of people who were legally barred from accumulating wealth. So we do that. We get the statistics, the numbers of the enslaved from the slave schedules, and we calculate our estimate for the per capita wealth gap at the time by assuming zero wealth for the enslaved. So we're not not taking a stance on what a lifetime of bondage actually means for your net worth, you know, but assuming zero wealth for the enslaved, we get an enormous wealth ratio, white to black wealth ratio of 60 to 1. 
So when the paper starts, it's 1860. The ratio is 60 to one, which means that the average white American has 60 times as much wealth as the average black American. And when you say that at the time, of course, 90% of black Americans at the time were enslaved, it means that the average wealth for black Americans is coming entirely from the 400,000 or so exactly. free black Americans. Exactly. Right. That's how we get the average. But actually, the vast majority of black Americans, for them, it was zero yes, in this and, calculation. And we think it's important to take that into account. Uh, and this will you know, come up again and again, this concept of two nations. We can think about and it was very much true at the time, black Americans were segregated, fully segregated and separated from from society, from the nation. They were, you know, there were discussions at the time of emancipation of moving everyone to the African continent because there there was just it was so difficult to envision this group continuing on in America as part of American society. So you can think about that two cents on the dollar, which is what that 60 to one ratio means, as the starting endowment of black Americans at the time of emancipation. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. And then, of course, immediately afterwards, there's the Civil War, there's emancipation, there's the post-Civil War period when at least at first there was the promise of convergence between black wealth and white wealth. I think that promise is now considered to have been a failed promise. But there was a period of time, according to your paper, where there did seem to be some rapid convergence. So can you kind of take us through through that next period? Sure. So what was really very surprising to me, at least once we finished putting the data together, is you see this big drop in the racial wealth gap from 1860 to 1870. You could call that basically the emancipation effect. So now all of the formerly enslaved for the first time, have some right to accumulate property. And many, many of them did so. And the degree to which uh, the formerly enslaved began to accumulate property should really blow us all away, given that this is a population starting with literally nothing. But people worked hard and they bought land and they were very focused on buying land. And this is something that W.E.B. Du Bois documented very carefully. So the greatest drop in the racial wealth gap, if you look at this full 160-year time span, it actually happened in that in that decade, essentially. In that first decade? Yes. Um, the emancipation effect. And how much, how much did it fall, it approximately? It fell to about uh, 23 to 1. So that's a big drop. We look into the, um, the contribution. Of course, there's a category of wealth that's been eliminated, slave wealth, right? And then there's the accumulation of property by the newly emancipated. And most, so on both sides of exactly, the leg of the ratio. Exactly. Most of that drop is really coming from new property accumulation by black Americans. Okay. So in that first decade, big drop in the ratio. There is a lot of convergence, the emancipation effect. Uh, post-1870, uh, what happens then? There's continued convergence. The racial wealth gap continues to fall, and it falls to about 10 to 1 by 1920. So, you know, thinking about what's going on in this period, this is surprising. This is once again a major step forward in racial wealth convergence. What happens after that, you know, you start to see basically the gap stabilizes. So the rate of convergence slows down. And then by the middle of the 20th century, the racial wealth gap 
in the 1950s is pretty much the racial wealth gap we have today. Which is around six or seven to one. Is that six about or seven right? to one, exactly. Okay. And so that was another big surprise, big reveal from putting that data together is that, you know, what we knew before going in is that the gap's been pretty stable since the 80s. But now we know actually it's it's actually the past 70 years that it hasn't really changed. Yeah. To, to even put this in less technical terms, in those first 60 years after 1860, there's progress in moving towards wealth equality. Yes. You know, it's um, it could have been faster progress, but there's definitive progress. By the time you get to 1950, it seems to have calcified, right? Like that exactly. progress ends and then we have a racial wealth gap that's still quite big where – White Americans on average have about six to seven times as much wealth as the average black American. Um, and it just kind of stays in place until, frankly, until now, right? Yes. I mean, there's with some fluctuations exactly. in between. And we'll talk about that. And there's a quote that you have to start your paper, and I'd, I'd love to read it and get your thoughts on it. Um, here's what you write. In a speech to Congress in 1920, U.S. Senator Selden Spencer, Republican of Missouri, lauded the amount of wealth accumulated by black Americans since the Civil War, stating that it, and then now you're quoting him, surpassed any progress under any like circumstances in the history of the world, unquote. Uh, but then you go on to write that 100 years after that assessment, basically the wealth gap remains you know, one of the biggest economic gaps between two groups of people in the US that you can, that you can find. That's really sobering. That's really troubling. And I'm kind of curious to know like, what your response was once you actually finished the paper and you had found these trends and especially this sort of, like I said, the, the end of progress or the dramatic slowing of progress in the last century. Yeah. So I have kind of two, two thoughts on that. One, you know, that quote, it, it's both very right and very wrong. You know, standing from that vantage point, this person was looking back on what we now know today was the fastest period of racial wealth convergence. At the same time, Du Bois, again, also thinking very carefully about, about wealth and wealth inequality between Black and white Americans, said that emancipation without reparations, without compensation to the enslaved, was just this massive, reckless experiment. And so I really want to elevate his words as well, because he identified that, you know, the the path that we started walking down post-Civil War, where, you know, millions of the enslaved obtain freedom, but nothing else. You know, they obtain their rights and, and not being slaves, but no material compensation, nothing. That's the reckless experiment. And that's what we're living. We're still living that today. Yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit about what happened in some of those like time periods and then I'd love to ask some technical questions about how you go about doing a paper like this. So we have this first period from 1860 to 1920. There's convergence. It's interesting though, you do write that the convergence still could have been faster that this was still a period of time when even when black Americans did accumulate wealth, there were deliberate government policies, there were other things happening that ended up removing their wealth, expropriating their wealth, taking it away, sometimes violently. Um, and I'd love to hear more about like that initial period and sort of what Black Americans were facing in terms of wealth accumulation. Sure. Well, it 
maybe jumping the gun a little bit, but I actually think it's important to understand this period is the the simple model we we lay out. Uh, and because comparing what we would anticipate happening under certain conditions, like equal conditions for wealth accumulation versus what we observe in the data, it just becomes a lot clearer if we walk through what that looks like. So we need a benchmark, basically. What would we what would we see under equal savings rates between Black and white Americans, equal capital gains, et cetera, in those first 60 years or so? Um, Can we just explain those terms real quick yep. for our listeners? Yep. So Let like, me walk through it. Yeah. When you talk about savings rates and capital gains, yeah, what do you mean? So we're interested in how wealth for these two groups is going to evolve from, you know, you could say generation to generation. So wealth tomorrow, we model it as a function of wealth today plus the fraction of income that you save. That's the savings rate times your income. Mm -hmm. And then all of that wealth plus the savings from income is going to appreciate you know, so you can think about your whatever money you might have in the stock market or in your retirement account. That's going to grow. The value of your that's house can the, go up too. The value over time. of your house, yeah. so that's going to appreciate. So those are the you know there are three fundamental parameters. One is the savings rate. One is the capital gains, and then income. Income also grows. You know, over the course of the life cycle, or in this case, we're thinking about income growth across generations as Black Americans gain access to jobs that they were uh, denied access to initially, et cetera. That is going to uh, determine the growth of income. So there's sure. an income growth rate. And of course, those are all related because just in common sense terms, if you're making money at your job and the amount of money that you make at your job goes up. That makes it easier to save, and that makes it easier to accumulate wealth. Yeah, just yeah. Basic the level of sense. your savings will be greater if you have the exactly. same savings okay. rate, but more income. Cool. Thank you for that explanation. <laughs> of course. So, um, so we use this framework to set up a thought experiment, and the thought experiment is: imagine we we have emancipation. We're starting out from the vantage point of, say, 1870, and we want to say we know the initial gaps in wealth. We're going to call those the starting endowments. Uh, for the black nation and the white nation, so to speak. And then we're going to say, well, suppose that savings rates and capital gains are actually equal for the two groups. So effectively, you can imagine that as getting the same rate of return on the same on assets. You can think about that as identical savings rates from income. Mm-hmm. And then for income growth, we're actually just going to take what we observe in the data because there is income convergence between black and white Americans on average over this full 150-year period. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the income gaps between black and white Americans aren't as large as they were at the turn of the 20th century, right? right. So that means that black incomes have grown faster than white incomes. Mm-hmm. So we actually just take those income growth rates from the data and we say, okay, let's let this play out. What would the wealth gap be if we let this play out for the next 150 years under what we call equal conditions for wealth accumulation? And what we see is that same hockey stick shape where initially convergence is quick, then it slows down, then it flattens out entirely for a wealth gap of around three to one today. Still a wealth gap, just to be clear, even under equal conditions, which means the same savings rates, the same ability to accumulate wealth between white and black Americans, even if that had been the case, there would still be a large wealth gap now, 
which means that we we can attribute that effectively to what's left, which is the initial endowment of wealth that went to black Americans who are newly freed versus white Americans who already had the amount of wealth that they had. Is that exactly, exactly. And, you know, we can let that model keep running. And, you know, preview is still 200 years later from today, we still wouldn't close the racial wealth right. gap given where we started. It's interesting because both things matter. This is a kind of an important nuance mm-hmm. in your paper. You do need the conditions to be, you know, similar for there to be convergence, yes. the ability to, to save, the ability to benefit from capital gains, et cetera, income convergence, and so on. And the initial difference in how much money you start with also matters. Exactly. So now we have this kind of benchmark for, okay, under sort of ideal conditions, right, equality and savings rates and capital gains, continued income convergence, uh, what would the wealth gap be in different periods of time? We actually kind of flipped the order there. So now everybody knows conceptually what we're talking about. Now we can talk about those time periods. Exactly. Awesome. So what we see now, now when we go back to those first 50 or 60 years, we have a bit of a different viewpoint, right? So um, that senator who said, oh my gosh, this is progress that blows away, you know, anything we've ever seen. Well, it could have been a lot better, right? It could have been a lot faster. So we see that actually relative to that benchmark, um, convergence really lagged in those first 50 years or so, those critical years. From Even though those were the years of progress. Those were the years of lagged. progress. But um, compared to, again, that that benchmark that we set up, you know, these are the years where the data show the slowest convergence relative to that benchmark. OK. Uh-huh. And so that sort of takes us through really this period that we you know, it totally lines up with what we know historically. This is the end of Reconstruction, the sort of reclaiming of power by by Democrats in the South, by, you know, extreme segregationists who restructure this society that's in turn into Jim Crow. Yeah. So in other words, it, this is a period during which, of course, there was no more enslavement, but there were all these other ways to deny Black Americans the ability to participate in society and to, you know, make money and accumulate wealth. Yes, and yeah. it was, and that's a very anodyne way of saying it. By the way, this was an extremely <laughs> violent period. Exactly. A lot of this involved a lot of really horrible, destructive things. Happening. Exactly, and and I want to highlight this is you know the active construction of a new kind of racial state, um, and so you have limitations on what occupations black workers can hold. Uh, There are different wage scales, you know, where the highest paying black worker has to make less than the lowest paying white worker. There is violent expropriation of black property. So, of course, you can think of the, the case of the Tulsa race massacre. And this kind of thing is just prevalent in the South at the time and other parts of the United States. And it's no surprise then that when we go back to those savings rates and capital gains, you know, if you destroy, if you just kind of destroy some fraction of black wealth each period, that's going to show up in differences in this capital gains, right? Because just imagine that instead of appreciating this much, you're also taking some away. If you suppress incomes or if you saddle a population with a lot of debt, there's a lot of literature showing that your savings rate depends on your income level. Or if you have a lot of debt, then you're kind of disincentivized from savings because if you save, it just gets claimed, right, by your debt collectors. And also, 
Black Americans didn't have the same access to credit as white Americans, and intellectual property was not as protected for black Americans, which meant that it was also a lot harder for black Americans to accumulate wealth as entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I mean, thankfully, we can rely on other work that's been done describing this period. Um, You can think about Lisa Cook's work on the impact of lynchings on patenting rates for black Americans, for black innovators. There was another uh, paper quite recently by Burma and Cara Barbunas where they they're also studying uh, the long-run effect of slavery on on wealth gaps today, but through a very macro model lens. Mm-hmm. But I just there's a footnote in the paper that just you know continues to haunt me, where they tell the story of this formerly enslaved person. I think his name is Henry Boyd, who actually was able to buy his own freedom. He was an innovator. He wanted to create a business. So after he obtains his freedom. He tries to actually set up his business, but he can't take out a loan because he's black. So he has to partner with a white business partner. And the the footnote, you know, walks you through the, the number of times his shop is just completely burned down and destroyed. And at some point, he just goes, ah, this is not really worth it. Every time I'm putting up capital, it's getting completely destroyed. And he shuts down. You know, he closes shop. And, you know, that comes back to this, you know, the entrepreneur rate. You know, it's like, what is actually your return here? There's no incentive to continue to invest in this in this kind of asset in this business because it's just getting destroyed these gaps in the wealth accumulation conditions that's what's driving slower convergence over this period that's 1920 and then mm-hmm. there's much slower convergence but still some convergence mm-hmm. through 1950 mm-hmm. this is a period that included of course the great depression it included world war 2 and yeah. so what's kind of going on in those few decades there's a lot going on and honestly <laughs> we kind of punt to future researchers to tell us i think the great depression is a super important period to study here and it's not entirely clear what the impact might be on the wealth gap. And that's because if you think about who's uh, most exposed to this kind of shock, well, on the one hand, it's those who hold assets, right, that see their assets really uh, decline in value during the Great Depression. But of course, there's also just the total deprivation at the at the bottom of the income distribution. And so it's a little bit unclear. World War II is another period where You know, when we first kind of put this data together, that was one period where I was really expecting to see a bigger decline in the wealth gap. And that's because there were really two key moments in the 20th century where the income gap between black and white Americans closed dramatically. And that's World War II and then the period of the civil rights era, basically. The 60s and 70s. and early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, during World War II, it's like... The U.S. government needed people working in defense, and you had soldiers being deployed, so they had to bring workers that they typically didn't rely on, such as women and black workers who, you know, used to not really have jobs in manufacturing at all. They finally get brought in, and there's really fascinating work in economic history showing that occupational upgrading that black workers experienced during the war stuck. You know, it was a permanent shift. Women. They exit the labor force again when the soldiers come back. But black workers, they did seem to kind of have a, okay, you know, they're also black women. But what I mean is <laughs> sure, sure, black sure. men, let's let's be clear, black yeah. men, you know, they kind of permanently benefited from the war. And maybe employers learned like, hey, they can also do this work. Um, sort of a wartime yeah. economy when yeah. the U.S. economy needed all the workers it could find. And that also would have included also as part of this upgrading 
training, education, on the job training. And so, yeah, you're not going to just lose the skill sets afterwards, yeah, right? And concerted, you know, anti-discrimination efforts by the government because nothing could threaten war production, including racism, <laughs> right. you know. So even um, if you were a yeah. business that wanted to be racist and wanted to exclude black people from working there, the economy needed your product and you couldn't get any other workers. So in exactly. some sense, there was an overriding of- And not just the business owners, white workers would go on strike and the National Guard would come and put those strikes down and say, sorry, you're just going to have to work oh, alongside- Oh, you mean when, when there was integration yes. of the workforce, yes. really? Okay. Yes. Um, so again, there's, this is the period where we had the first kind of uh, equal employment uh, policies at the federal level and enforcement of those policies because the stakes were just too high. Okay. And then we hit 1950. And I think we can maybe break up the period from 1950 to now uh, in, I guess, three segments, because right in the middle of that, you describe this period from the 60s to the 70s, into the 70s, where there actually was some convergence and yep. where, where um, Black Americans were catching up a little bit in terms of wealth to white Americans. Yeah. Um, not a ton. I don't want to say that like it was anywhere close to no, equality or anything, exactly. but there was a reinvigoration of that convergence. But it was a very short period right in between these two periods, um, you know, 1950 to the 60s and then from the 80s to now, where if anything, I think it was going backwards, right? Exactly. So again, you know, always keep in mind that benchmark, this kind of uh, – you know, getting the the ball rolling from 1870 under these equal conditions for wealth accumulation um, and starting with the initial gaps. Okay, so compared to that benchmark, we were off. We were converging more slowly in the first 50 years. And then, as you mentioned, in the 60s and 70s, we see some of the catch up. So we were off benchmark and now uh, we see more convergence so than like we would lagging. expect. Exactly. Lagging the benchmark and then in the 60s and 70s, exactly. actually exceeding where you exactly. would be, where you think you would be based on exactly. that benchmark comparison. And let me remind our listeners also that benchmark that, that you're referring to, this is this hypothetical situation of what kind of convergence we would have if you assume that the savings rates were the same between black Americans and white Americans and that the gains on their wealth would also be the same, right? Yes, okay. from 1870 okay. all the way to the present. So okay. that's so the benchmark. Exactly. Brief, brief period in the civil rights era. Um, what do you think accounts for that brief but fast convergence during you know those, those couple of decades? Well, this was a 10-year period in which the earnings gap between black and white Americans dropped to half its former size. Mm -hmm. That's what the civil rights era was. I mean, it was certainly the most dramatic episode of racial income convergence since 1950. Uh, and that continues to be true today. You know, we just have not seen that kind of improvement in uh, relative black economic status since then. And was that because black workers were having more access to higher paying jobs overall. What, what do you think accounts for for like that, you know, fast income convergence? This has been a major question economists have been trying to understand. And actually, uh, one of my other papers tries to fill in some of that gap in understanding. So the theories that were put out were basically 
twofold. They fall into two camps, supply-related and demand-related. So anti-discrimination would fall on the demand side in terms of employers' demand for Black workers. And certainly you have the Civil Rights Act, which is establishing Black workers' rights to these to these jobs. So that's the demand piece. And economists had pegged that at around, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the reduction in, in the income gap or the earnings gap. The supply side, a very popular one that economists put forward is improvements in the the quality of schooling that black children received. So you also have better investment in schools for black children. You have improvements in their educational outcomes. And economists also pegged that at around 20 percent of this decline. There was something else going on. The 60s, it was the period of the Great Society programs by the Johnson administration. And one very important one was expansions in the coverage of the federal minimum wage. So this was a policy that literally no one looked at when trying to understand the reduction in the racial earnings gap during this period. And my co-author, Claire Montialou, and I went and said, wait a minute, The industries that got covered through this expansion in minimum wage coverage were retail, services, agriculture. These are canonical minimum wage industries today, but imagine, you know, they were not even covered in the initial version of the minimum wage. So if you were a fast food worker back then or a retail worker, you would not you did not get you access eligible for the minimum wage. Yeah, you were not eligible for the minimum wage. It was not so it, it Effectively, you know, in a lot of these lower income parts of the economy, there was no minimum wage. Then, yes. And we're talking right? about the federal minimum wage. Right. Uh, so then then as part of the expansion of social safety net programs in the 60s, there was this expansion of the minimum wage to all these places. And presumably this matters because black these, workers were overrepresented. They were disproportionately in employed in these places. Okay. We found that that single reform of expanding coverage to those sectors explains as much of the reduction in the racial earnings gap as anti-discrimination legislation or schooling improvements for black kids. So that is really huge. That was a missing piece of the of the story. And that it makes a lot of sense when you think about black workers being concentrated in these lowest paying lowest paying jobs of the lowest paying sectors finally get covered under what continues to be the highest real minimum wage, federal minimum wage we've ever had in the history of this country. So the 1960s minimum wage was the most aggressive one, again, that we've had in the history of this country in real terms. And the the perennial debate amongst economists about the minimum wage is, well, if you lift up the minimum wage, will it lead to some folks losing their jobs because that's a cost for businesses, a labor cost. And so if you raise the cost, businesses might reduce how many workers they employ. But it sounds like from what you're saying, if this was such a big part of the income convergence, that the expansion of the minimum wage to these low income occupations did not have, I'm assuming, a very big employment effect, as economists refer to it. You're exactly right. And actually, that was what initially drew my co-author, Claire, and I to this period is, you know, as we have debates about raising the minimum wage to 15 an hour today or wherever we might go, people want to know, well, that's really a big shift. You know, what impact would that have on the economy? So we thought, well, let's go back in time. Again, this is something I do in my research. Let's go back to a time where it actually happened and see, you know, what was the impact on jobs? So we actually find no impact impact on employment. And perhaps 
more surprisingly, uh, depending on your your model or your priors about discrimination in the economy at the time, we don't see that uh, employers then switch to white workers for those jobs. So you could imagine a world where uh, they just don't want to pay black workers that much. They view them as less productive. And so when the minimum wage goes up, you would switch to white workers for those jobs. We don't see that happening at all. And and a really good example is think about back of the house jobs versus front of the house jobs. Like if you take the restaurant sector, we looked in the data and, you know, less than 5% of black workers are waiters and waitresses in that sector compared to 95% of them are are white, right? Versus if you look at the janitorial positions, uh, the dishwasher positions, there you see that black workers are vastly overrepresented. So one dynamic that might be going on is actually that white workers don't want to work those jobs. They are associated with lower status. When the racialization of certain types of jobs is that strong, that kind of substitution just can't ha- happen. Employers literally can't replace black workers with white workers for those types of positions, which all the more emphasizes the importance of these kinds of minimum wage policies to lift up wages in those jobs. And so that's what we think is part of the explanation for why the policy wasn't really distortionary. It just lifted the wages of those workers and ended up um, greatly declining racial income gaps. Okay, so we have like the demand side explanations, the supply side explanations for this brief period of convergence in the 60s and 70s. Since the 80s, though, you find that there's actually been not just no progress, but a little bit of a reversal in terms of the wealth gap. Um, I have to imagine this is really hard to try to like disentangle like what's necessarily responsible for that. But you do find some things, right? Like you point to. It's not that hard, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, really so what, what is what is what yeah. is sort of the, the primary our, explanation for yeah, it? Yeah, let's come back to our key ingredients for how wealth evolves period to period. So it's what you save from your income. It's how much your income is growing. And it's how much your wealth appreciates. So now we can ask, well, how are the racial differences in these wealth accumulating conditions, savings, income, capital gains, changing? And the answer is, you know, there's one gap that's increasing. So income convergence basically stops. We learned that. That's not good. Uh, The savings rate's very stable, the gap in the savings rate. The gap in capital gains doubles. So in other words, like the the holdings, the specific wealth that white Americans have, for example, on average could be the stock market, their homes, et cetera, went up by a lot more in percentage terms than the wealth that was held by black Americans. And part of that has to do with the different kinds of holdings that they had. That's what you found in your paper, that their portfolios were different. White Americans had more money in the stock market, which went up by a lot in this period of time. Black Americans uh, are more likely to have a higher share of their wealth in their houses, although even there, the home ownership rate is also a big gap between white Americans and black Americans as well. It's something like 70% for white Americans and I think between 40 and 50% yeah, exactly. for black Americans. So a smaller share of black households would have had houses in the first place. Is that is that roughly a, a correct explanation? Yes, that's that's right. And, you know, that can be those are two concepts that it's kind of hard to hold in one's head at the same time, that there's this big homeownership rate gap. But at the same time, when, you know, when home values increase, 
you know, all else equal, that's going to close the average racial wealth gap because Black Americans, uh, their portfolios are made up mostly of housing wealth. And by contrast, their portfolios have very little equity holdings in them and make up a much smaller share. So when the equity market booms, that's going to disproportionately benefit white households and lead the wealth gap to increase. So that basically is the fundamental explanation for why since the 1980s, not only have we left the convergence path, you know, like the wealth gap is actually increasing because of these disproportionate gains for the average white household. So again, we're measuring the average wealth gap. So we can think about the fact that, okay, most Black Americans don't own their home, but if you take average wealth for the Black population, 60% of that is in housing wealth. Mm -hmm. And uh, by contrast, for white Americans, that's around 40%. So those portfolios are more diversified, we would say. Let's talk about possible policy implications, because there is a part in the paper about this. And This is also quite subtle because you effectively look at the two different explanations for the resilience in the racial wealth gap, the initial endowment, number one, the initial conditions, and then the importance of things like the savings rate, income convergence, the ability to make money on the wealth you already have. That if you look at like those two things, well, those call for possibly two different but complementary sets of policies, right? So do you want to just kind of take us through uh, what those are and then and then we'll sure. talk about their, their meaning? So there's a lot of talk about closing the racial wealth gap. And then when you kind of dig in to look and see what people have talked about, some of the policies that have been proposed are things like financial literacy campaigns, so really encouraging people to diversify their portfolios, encouraging Black Americans to invest more in stocks. You can also think about policies targeting income differences, right? We know that income levels help determine savings rates, so richer people save more. That is a finding out there. So, okay, if we boost people's incomes, maybe that'll increase savings rates. And we try to make a brief, but I think hard-hitting point on this. And it's to say, you know, suppose we wanted to see racial wealth convergence by the year 2050. So, you know, about 30 years from now. What kind of relative, you know, savings rate or, or capital gains or income growth rates would Black Americans need to enjoy relative to white Americans in order to close the racial wealth gap. If we're going to use these levers, what would it take? So taking each in turn, Black Americans could save 30% of their income every year. So the savings rate for, on average, white Americans is about 5%. Uh, or Black income, you know, somehow could we make it grow at 10% a year? Um, you know, the income growth rate is, you know, there have to be quite a dramatic difference between one and 2%, you know, right. And then capital gains, you know, what if capital gains for black Americans were more than twice what they are for white Americans? So those are our options when we think about the traditional set of policy tools people have been proposing. And that's why we want to bring attention again to the endowments piece. Um, This reckless experiment that we're living, you know, it has, there is a policy that tries to address that, and that's reparations. So we, we take off the shelf what Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen proposed in their book, From Here to Equality. 
It's a fascinating book. Everyone should read it. The argument is basically that, you know, how do we take into account all of the harms, both from slavery, but from the institutions that follow? And they land on, well, it's, you know, the the appropriate amount of reparations is actually that which closes the wealth gap between Black Americans who descended from the enslaved and white Americans. And they give a dollar figure. And we take that and apply it in our case. Now, we have all Black Americans in our data here. We're not able to distinguish those who descended from the enslaved and those who might be descended from immigrants or uh, the free Black population. Uh, Long story short, yes, reparations immediately leads to a major reduction in the wealth gap to close to parity, close to a ratio of one to one. And that's because you're just transferring this large sum of money into the endowment of Black Americans. So that's almost mechanical, right? And it would be sort of, in a sense, uh, it's a wealth redistribution policy that tries to undo, not in like human terms and in, you know what I mean, but in economic terms, that massive initial endowment effect from 1860, because it has had this effect that has lingered essentially all the way to the present day. That dollar amount, it, you know, ends up looking quite similar to various when you try to take into account, say, what would be the value of 40 acres and a mule today? Or what would be the value of the um, wages that were denied if you then apply, uh, you know? It's a, it's a big number. It's, it's, it's big in the number. hundreds of billions of dollars, it's right? Do you remember what trillion the- dollars. 10 trillion dollars. <laughs> right. So it's a big like number. three right. infrastructure plans. It's not okay. like that. <laughs> um, but anyway, we point out that, you know, if you want to break out of this long horizon convergence path we're in, There's not much else you can do aside from redistributing stocks of wealth. You know, that's just this fundamental, that long path we're locked in. It's where we started. It's those initial huge gaps. Now, what happens from there onwards, you know, then it comes back to what are our ingredients for how wealth evolves each period. Suppose we just suppose reparations and there's no reason to think this, but suppose it has no impact on gaps in savings rates, gaps in capital gains, et cetera. Hard to imagine that such a major transfer wouldn't affect these other parameters, but we are, we're going to abstract from them. Yes, in that case, if you continue to have a gap in capital gains, then the wealth gap is going to reemerge, you know, even in a post-reparations world. So I like to kind of put a positive spin on this and say that all of these beloved policies like financial literacy or policies targeting, you know, the labor market and income, they have a lot more bite when the wealth gap is one to one, then when the wealth gap is six to one. That's really kind of the, probably the most concise way to put it. Yeah. So in other words, these policies are complementary. Exactly. Right. In, in the way you write them up, it's like, if you do the wealth redistribution, that's great, but that only offsets one part of the reason that wealth can diverge. And then if you only do the things that target income, savings, and capital gains, It'll just take forever. Yeah. Quite literally, it'll Again, take forever. Kind of under the know? assumption that something as massive as reparations wouldn't affect these gaps in savings rates and capital gains, et cetera. So there could be an interaction between the two. If we take a pessimistic view that there is no you know, um, impact on those factors, then yeah, then the two policies would be really complementary in maintaining racial wealth parity. Sure. I want to note, by the way, that you end your paper on a little bit of a pessimistic note, right? I mean, I think you have a, a line in there that wasn't like the concluding line in the piece or anything, but it struck me, which is that a convergence of the wealth gap when looking realistically 
at the policies we have right now, for instance, seems almost unattainable. We need to know. We need to yeah. know. It's the it's the first step to considering, you know, probably bolder policies that would have uh, a bigger impact and, a, and a, a faster impact. One reason I think it's good, though, to think in what I think a lot of people would look at and say, well, that's like pie in the sky, never will happen. But one reason I think it's good to think in these bold terms, very imaginative terms, right, is that it also reveals in some sense what's going on right now. And one question I have for you is, did anything surprise you about the research that you did here and, and as you you know started looking at the numbers, putting together all these older data sets and everything, and then the trend revealed itself, uh, did anything surprise you or even shock you? Uh, so I, I think I've mentioned a bit of this already about how some key periods that we might associate with convergence, you know, don't show up as major periods of convergence given the the size of the initial gap. So Yes, we we told a really happy story about the civil rights era and what went on in terms of income. You know, not as much of that translated into the wealth dynamics as I would have expected. That was one surprise for me. The other, of course, is that again, you know, the the most convergence that we've seen happened in the first 50 years. I think that the one thing that was very revealing to us in doing the data work was also just who was collecting information on wealth gaps and why. So obviously in the census in the 1860s and 70s, we have that information because land and property are so important to the functioning of the economy. It's an amazing resource. Then we lose that information and we really had to scour to fill in that picture. And some of the the scholars who were doing important work on documenting wealth differences and just black wealth were people like Monroe Nathan Work. He was a sociologist who published for many uh, years this publication called the, the Negro Yearbook. It was basically a statistical report of Black economic status that covered everything from schools to churches to businesses to wealth, just kind of putting out overall estimates of Black wealth nationally, aggregate Black wealth. There used to be actually a unit in the Department of Labor called the Negro Economics Unit. It lost funding in the early 20th century, and, uh, but we actually got the papers from that unit, the archive, basically. And that's where we found this quote by this senator. It was in their documents. So really thinking carefully about the status of Black Americans, again, as this nation within the nation, I think that kind of information, which we managed to pull together from these very disparate sources, it sort of fades from from national consciousness and, and as kind of well captured by the disappearance of this unit. Like imagine if we still had a unit in the Department of Labor dedicated to the economic status of Black Americans. That would be awesome. And instead, you know, I think a lot of the focus on racial inequality within economics not all of it, but a lot of it shifted towards, you know, neighborhoods and sort of this urban problem. So a lot of the intergenerational mobility literature looks at it this way or something that's about human capital differences. Can we fix this with schooling and, you know, getting people equal access to these opportunities, not focused on the scars that we live with due to these initial, you know, just vast gaps and the institutions that gave rise to them. Yeah, it's so fascinating because 
one thing that really comes through in the paper as well is that even though there can be this kind of convergence on income, which is what a lot of, I think, economists and a lot of us who follow the economy tend to focus on a lot, it will only have a limited effect in some cases on wealth. And you enumerate a lot of those reasons, right? But there's all these other things happening besides just, hey, let's just get to the point where white Americans and black Americans are making roughly the same amount of money on average. And the rest just kind of takes care of itself. And I see the paper as being a kind of refutation of that idea. Yeah. And in some ways, it's really just connecting existing ideas that are out there. The The literature on wealth inequality points out this fact that when the ratio of wealth to income is as large as it is and it's continuing to grow, then whatever you do on the income side is just not going to matter as much as just how wealth appreciates each period. That's why um, the rise of the stock market has led to su such an increase in wealth inequality because it's how wealth is appreciating each period much more so than you know what's going on on the income on the income side. Plus, combined with the fact that income just hasn't really been growing for most of the population. What's next for Alora Durenincourt? What do you want to study next? What are you going to apply your energies to? So um, I mentioned the focus of economists on neighborhoods and, quote unquote, moving to opportunity as a fix for inequality. And some of my prior work really tries to, to interrogate that idea. And that is work on the, the Great Migration, which I called the largest natural experiment in moving to opportunity in U.S. history. This is a great paper, by the way. Can you just tell everybody sort of what the concluding findings were on that before sure. you tell us what you're going to build on? Yeah. Um, millions of Black Americans moved from the southern United States, where at the turn of the 20th century, 90 percent of the population was actually concentrated. 90 percent of Black Americans lived in the South. I don't even need to go into the reasons why one might want to leave the South as a Black American in you <laughs> sure. know the 1930s or 40s, and that happens uh, at a massive scale. Um, the factors into why it happens at that time are, are interesting, but you know World War II demand for Black workers in the more industrial North, um, the decline of the cotton sector in the South, it, it reduced the opportunity cost of, of leaving. If you want to put it in those terms. Sure. Um, and so you see this just massive migration. Uh, and it was the case that, you know, in the North, a Black child just faced such a better trajectory. It may not have been racial parity, but I think there was an aspiration to achieving equal status in society that one could have raising a family as a, you know, as a Black family in the North compared to the South. Today, that regional distinction is completely gone. And uh, some of the worst places to raise a Black child in America are actually some of these former Great Migration destination cities, these places that were part of the promised land, um, and now show that the outcomes, especially for Black boys, are, are much worse compared to places that didn't have this major influx. So other places in the North that didn't see this dramatic change in their racial composition. Yeah. So the punchline of the paper is that these places that were part of the promised land where black children used to be able to do so well, once the black population and the and the racial composition of these places changed dramatically, that ladder of opportunity was basically taken away. There was white flight. Um, there was an increase in crime. Um, there is a spatial resorting of where the good schools are, of where the opportunities are. And Black Americans are left concentrated in the 
parts of these metropolitan areas that don't have those kinds of public amenities and concentrated through discrimination in the real estate market, through just lack of income and ability to move to the suburbs. The one thing that does see an increase in spending is police, right? So if you could think about that as, you know, how are these these metropolitan areas responding to racial composition changes and the problems in the inner city. And that is through police spending and increases in in incarceration. And that's actually what's taken me to my next project in this area. I want to understand, did the ways localities, municipalities, cities, did the ways that they treat crime change because of this change in the racial composition of the population. So take, you know, a misdemeanor like loitering or disorderly conduct. These are the kinds of things you see in municipal codes all the way back in time. But, you know, how do we treat those types of behaviors? Are we talking about a slap on the wrist or are we talking about jail time? Or what are we talking about in terms of fines? So along with, you know, an awesome team of co-authors, we've launched this probably overly ambitious project of basically documenting changes in in municipal codes and ordinances from throughout the 20th century in these major destination locations. So we're talking about processing hundreds of these old municipal codes from before the migration really took off to um, afterwards in the 70s, 80s, and onwards, and understanding how these types of behaviors were treated and whether punitiveness increased in response to the Great Migration. Deep insight that I remember from that paper, and I hope I get this right, is that even though migration of any kind, whether it's uh, a country's internal migration, which was what the Great Migration was, or migration from outside of the country, even though it can represent a wonderful opportunity for the cities that end up receiving these migrants, the response of the cities themselves really matters for whether or not that opportunity is capitalized on, that it has to be a a kind of like symbiotic process Exactly. Or put another way, again, to take this really uh, popular policy idea of moving people to opportunity, you know, this is what moving to opportunity at scale looks like. And so it's not really the case. I think maybe the way I would put the biggest lesson is that opportunity in a location, how good a place is for families isn't something that falls from the sky. It's not baked into the soil or the water. It's really actually a collection of decisions that local residents and policymakers have made. And those decisions are responsive to who actually lives in that location. So when we throw around the idea of let's solve poverty by moving families from from high poverty to low poverty neighborhoods, um, that's maybe a policy that can only work at a very small scale. And so we still need to think about what to do about everyone else who doesn't get to move to opportunity. Laura Durrettencourt, thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's all the time we have for today's show. We are going to post a link to Alora's paper and her other work in the show notes for today's episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer. And as always, our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. 
Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. It really does help get the word out about The New Bazaar and makes it more likely that we'll be able to launch season two sooner rather than later. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next episode. 